where we have the best flock shepherds. Our shepherds are of the highest standard. Their love for Christ and their love for the church is unmatched. We truly thank God for Francis and your family. And um, yeah, you're just just starting that journey of uh, sleepless nights. So you got many more days, weeks, months, years to go before your kids will go down without waking up at night. But thank God for your faithfulness and your tireless service to the Lord. And for all of our flock shepherds, uh, it's joy to hear Jason last week and all the shepherds to come to hear just your heart for Christ and heart for our church. Well, for me, it's good to be back in the pulpit. Got to admit, it was a good time off for me. Last week, I had absolutely no responsibilities on Sunday. And I had a little taste of what you guys go through every Sunday. And now I'm struggling with contentment because <laughs> filled with covetousness. Man, it was so fun last Sunday. Just to sit there, not worry about anything, just to sing and pray and hear God's word and go eat snacks. I, I rarely get to get snacks because you guys <laughs> eat it all before I get there. <laughs> and then um, just go to second hour and sit in the back and just kind of, you know, doodle on my notebook. <laughs> notebook and, you know, hear Gary's great teaching, but, you know, and then just the fellowship afterwards. Man, you guys have a great, and you don't have responsibilities on Sundays. But good to be back, if you don't know. Um, Two two weeks and six days ago, or is it right? Two weeks, six days ago, something like that. Soon had we had uh, Eleanor Joy Shin. Uh, we left the last night of retreat to go to the hospital to uh, for baby Eleanor. Now uh, you know there's some pressure on Serena and some pressure on me because we're skipping out on retreat in the guise of giving birth. So I was telling Serena we have to give birth tonight. <laughs> Because everybody's, we told everybody we're leaving the retreat and missing out on two sessions. And if we don't come back with the baby, they'll be very suspicious of us. So I prayed and pressured her and praised God. A few hours later, the baby was born. That's our excuse note. Baby Eleanor, we're missing out on the last retreat, last night of the retreat. So baby and mom are doing well. And actually they're with us today. So praise God. I think Jane, you're here as well, right? I see Jason. Is Jane here? Okay, she's here. Great. So we have two two new babies with us. Well, I promised a few weeks ago that even if it killed me, I'm going to start Second Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1. Almost killed me, but I'm here, so we're starting Second Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, you guys might not know this, but years ago, when I was um, a young bachelor... I actually lived with Paul Chung. Right? So Paul Chung and I used to be roommates. We used to sleep in the same room and share a study room together. I think over a year, maybe a year and a half. You don't, you don't really know a person until you live with that person. Right? So once you live with a guy, man, you don't want to do it again. <laughs> no. You really get to know one another. And you influence one another, the good and the bad. So I'm sure I influenced Paul in various ways, good and bad. But Paul influenced me good and bad ways too. But uh, in a good way, he influenced me in his, with his love for books. Um, Paul's, I'm a pseudo-intellectual, right? I'm a wannabe intellectual. Paul is semi-pseudo. Now, Paul's a real intellectual. He's a lover of books, and he reads difficult books and he understands them. I read difficult books, and I turn to Paul. What does that mean again? <laughs> right? But Paul reads and he understands. And 
he was all in this uh, apologetics uh, thing with Moreland and Zacharias and a man named Francis Schaeffer. He's got this three-volume set of his works. You know, he, he launched the Libri Institute, and God used him in a great way to really spearhead uh, and bring forward the, the Christian mind and defending the Christian faith in an antagonistic culture society. So he had this book by Schaefer, and um, <clears throat> I read the book cover to cover. I don't really remember the book because I don't think I understood a lot of it. But what I do remember is the title, right? Great book, better title. And the title is, He is There and He is Not Silent. He is there and he is not silent. So he's contrasting the despair and the silence of this world. How men... Mankind are atrophying in their sins because they're living in silence. They're living in darkness without truth and without wisdom. And he's contrasting that with the Christian worldview where we have the revelation of God. We know God exists. How do we know? Because God has spoken to us. He is there and he's not silent. He is spoken. It is one of the convictions of all believers and it is one of the convictions that drives our ministry and drives this pulpit we believe that God is and he has spoken to us and that is our one of our foremost arguments for the existence of God forget the cause and effect argument forget the design argument forget the moral argument our argument is God has spoken study his word Read his revelation. Hear what he has to say. Understand it and submit to it. And you will know that God is there. God exists. God has spoken. And here in the Bible, in these 66 books of the Old and New Testament, we believe we have his inerrant and authoritative revelation about himself. We know God because he has spoken and we have his message In the scriptures, the writer of Hebrews addresses this point at the beginning of his epistle. We're going to get to 2 Timothy by way of the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles with you, open them. Open it to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The author of Hebrews is anonymous. Some say Paul. More say Apollos, we're not certain as to who wrote this epistle, but we know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God speaking to us, and the author of Hebrews begins his letter by addressing this point of God speaking to man. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Rari says, God has not been silent. He has not left us in the dark without the true revelation of himself. In fact, from long ago, God spoke. The first book of the Bible is not chronologically Genesis. It's the book of Job. Canonically, Genesis placed first, but chronologically, book of Job is the first book ever written. 
And in this book, God addresses the perplexing and oppressive question concerning human suffering, sin, and death, the pain and torment of losing loved ones to disease and death, and how a, a just, holy, a loving God could allow such suffering. In this first book, God speaks, and He unveils Himself. Reveals, apocalypse, unveils his eternal and mysterious truths about God's sovereignty, God's authority, human suffering, and his plan for salvation. That's what writer of Hebrews says, from long ago, from the very beginning, God was not silent. From the very beginnings of time, God revealed himself, God spoke. Book of Genesis, through his word, we find that He created all things. From the first moment when Adam and Eve, the apex of His creation, were were created, He communed with them by word. God spoke to Adam and God spoke to Eve. Did not leave them in darkness. He did not hide Himself from them. He spoke to them. book of Genesis records how God spoke many times. Many times, not just once, not a few times, God was a communicator. He desired a, a, a communication-based relationship with mankind. So God spoke to Adam and Eve, to Job, to Cain, to Noah, Abraham, so on and so on throughout the Old Testament. The next logical question is, how did God speak to man? Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says, in many ways in a diversity of ways. God spoke through dreams. Genesis 20, verse 3. King Abimelech had a dream about Abraham and his wife, where God speaks to him and condemns him. You're as good as dead, because the woman you you have taken is a married woman. Remember Genesis 28, verses 12 and 13. Jacob is in a deep sleep, and he has a dream of a ladder that ascends to the highest heavens, and he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder, and he knows it is God speaking to him. Not only dreams, but God has spoken to man through visions. Genesis 15.1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And in this vision, God spoke addressed Abraham and he said, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. What about Exodus 3? Moses had a vision of a bush that was on fire, but it was not burning up. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah had a vision. He went into the temple to worship Yahweh and he saw the splendor, the glory of God and the seraphim surrounding his throne. Worshipping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God spoke to man and through dreams, visions, but also through an audible voice. Audible voice. In Exodus 3, Moses is talking to God. He's having a conversation with God. And God says, Yahweh says, I have heard the cries of my people. They are my covenant people. I promised their father Abraham, that they would be my people. And they've been oppressed 
in Egypt. Now I send you to redeem my people out of enslavement. And Moses talks to God and he says, How can I go unless I know your name? Audible voice. God reveals his name. Exodus 3, 4. I am who I am. I am the self-existent eternal one. In Exodus 33:11, God talks about Moses, how the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. God also spoke through direct writing. Exodus 31:18, the tablets of stone with the finger of God, he wrote the Ten Commandments. So Moses came down with these tablets containing the Ten Commandments of God. They were written by God directly. So the writer of Hebrews says, God has not been silent. From the very beginning, He has spoken. And He's spoken to us in many different ways. But He qualifies that by saying, look at verse 1, by the prophets. By the prophets. God's primary means of giving His revelation was always through His prophets. The primary instruments that God used to unveil Himself, to reveal his true character, his true nature, his plan, his will to mankind has been through his prophets. They were unique mouthpieces of God. God, through the Holy Spirit, divinely inspired, used sinful men as instruments to produce the Holy Scriptures. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 1.21. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men were called prophets. People who spoke for God. Who communicated God's message. Boldly, courageously to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. They were great men, courageous men, who were given a very unique and special call. They were different from priests. Priests earned their office by inheritance. It was a Levitical tribe, and they were set apart to be priests forever. So if you were a priest, your son was a priest, and your grandson was a priest, and so on down the road, and you were a priest because your dad was a priest, you're in that tribe. Prophets were different. They were chosen men by God. Pick from among the tribes. This made it a distinct honor to be a prophet. You had to be specially called by God. You had to be a special kind of person not just anyone would do in fact you could be a very mediocre priest right the gene pool wasn't too good for you right so you're in this Levitical tribe and you're born and you're just a sloppy lazy guy but you're a priest so people come and sacrifice and you do a haphazard job of sacrificing animals and you sprinkle the blood and you you know you make a mess and you got blood all over you and you don't bathe well the next day you got you know just a lazy priest you're still a priest but not prophets. They were unique. Men of courage and conviction. Because 
suffering and being a prophet went hand in hand. There were two sides of one coin. Prophets spoke God's word. Men hate God, therefore they hate God's word. They hate being told what to do. They hate being, uh, they hate, they're haters of God. So they hate God's message, God's word. So they take it out on the messenger. So prophets suffered greatly. They were called to do extraordinary things. I mean, think about it, Moses. He was called upon to confront the, the superpower of his time and the king of that superpower with a, with a stick. Right? Moses, that's what you're called to do. Nathan, the prophet, was called to confront his king, to expose his sins to his face. Jeremiah, here he was in a society of false, filled with false teachers, false prophets, and they're all proclaiming a Joel Osteen message. Peace and safety. Right. Peace and safety. Right. Good tidings. Happy times are here. And Jeremiah is the lone voice crying on the wilderness. There is no peace. There is no safety. There is judgment and wrath. God is using the enemies of God, these pagan nations, as an instrument to judge us because of our sins against Yahweh. So what is Judah's response? Jeremiah, they throw him in a pit, left to die. And he weeps and groans. He's grieved over the destruction of his people. Call him the weeping prophet. You read Lamentations, and you know, I, I read Lamentations for, you know, from the beginning when I became a Christian. Never understood his, his grief and sadness over the destruction of Jerusalem. But understand it this way. What if God were to judge Cornerstone? God were to so grieve because of our callousness and sinfulness and complacency, our utter commitment to hypocrisy and refusal to obey God's word, that God destroyed our church, disbanded it, and divided it, it was a, and it was just destroyed before our eyes. If you love Cornerstone, you would cry. You would weep. Wow, we were a good church. We stood for the word of God. We really loved one. There was a time when people came, and they, they heard God's truth, and they were saved. They grew by the ministry of the church here. And now look at us. You would weep. Well, that's what Jeremiah was experiencing as he saw Jerusalem. We were a light to the nations. This city and our country was not just for ourselves. We were a hope for all the nations in the world for the revelation of God and His plan for salvation. Well, that was his experience as a prophet. What about the prophet of, prophet Daniel? Standing on the word of God and in his commitment to prayer in the face of execution, he will not back down. In the face of his enemies, the prophet of God. Uncompromising faith. Risking his own life. These were regular men called to a special work. They appeared from all walks of life, all classes of society. Amos was a shepherd. Elijah was a farmer. Abraham was a king. Ezekiel was a priest. But they were all called by God. They had no choice in the matter. You did not aspire to be a prophet. You did not um, study. You did not um, go to go to school or take a test. 
right? They were, they, people didn't vote on being a prophet. It was by the will of God. God chose you. And th- these men had no say in the matter. Let's look at some of these instances of God's call upon these prophets. Exodus 3, if you have your Bibles, look at the burning bush and Yahweh calling Moses. Exodus 3, verse 1, Moses is in the land of Midian, running away from the Egyptian government because he had committed murder. So he was a fugitive, hiding out in the wilderness, keeping flock of his father-in-law, verse 1. And then in verse 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, verse 2, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Go down to verse 9. Yahweh explains why he's calling Moses. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses' response. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I understand Moses. Why would anyone in their right mind want to be a prophet? Why would you want to be a prophet? Um... In the same vein, I don't know why anybody will want to be a pastor, want to be a preacher. Right? It's, it's not something that we aspire to. You aspire to be an elder, but not a double honor elder. Right? You aspire to follow Christ. But being a spokesperson for God is not the will of man, but the will of God. So when confronted with this call, Moses' response was, who am I? And when God spoke to him again. He said, I, I just can't be your prophet. I am not eloquent to be your spokesperson. How about Aaron? I have the perfect guy for you. He loves to talk, right? Man, he loves to get a crowd and hear him talk. So why don't you choose him? And I'll just be happy here in the wilderness tending flock. God said, no. You know, I don't, God's not in the, you know, he's not in the business of, uh, soliciting. He's in the business of choosing, ordaining, commissioning, appointing. And in the great mysterious wisdom of God, the Trinitarian Council of God, they chose Moses. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah has this incredible vision of the glory of God. Above him stood the seraphim, verse 2. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another, and they said, and they proclaimed, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The first time, the extent of God's holiness is revealed to mankind. First time, Isaiah 6. Thrice holy God foundation of the threshold shook. The house was filled with smoke. 
Isaiah's response, God is here to judge me. Who am I? God is here to condemn me and to pour out His wrath upon me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I have a dirty mouth which tells me I have a dirty heart. My heart is full of depravity. I am undone. I am coming apart. I am destroyed. I am judged. My life is over. God grants him grace. One of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, verse 6, that he had taken with tongues from the altar, pointing to the cross of Christ. What should be painful to his mouth is a salve, forgiving him of his sins. Verse 7, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And then he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. You have chosen me, set me apart. Jeremiah said me. One more, Jeremiah chapter 1, <coughs> verses 4 through 10. Now, Jeremiah is great. It's like John the Baptist. God tells him, Jeremiah, before you were born, I chose you. Why, why are you are a fetus in your mother's womb? Well, your mom didn't even know she was pregnant. I knew you, I formed you, and I chose you to be my prophet. I think God revealed this to Jeremiah because God knew what was ahead of him. Of all the prophets of God, arguably no one suffered as Jeremiah. No one was as sensitive a soul and had his heart broken again and again like Jeremiah. No one wanted to quit like Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah 18? You have deceived me. God, you lied to me. I preach your message and no one receives it. I preach your message and all I get is antagonism and hatred. You lie to me. So I said to myself, I will not speak God's word anymore, but I can't help it. It is like fire shut up in my bones. I can't hold it in. in. Indeed, I cannot. Knowing how intensely he will suffer as a prophet, God reveals to him his call. Verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I sanctified. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Oh Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I'm only nine years old. Right? We don't know how old he was, but God, I'm only ten. I'm still in... AYSO, soccer league. I'm playing Pop Warner football. You want me to be a prophet? The Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. You have no choice in the matter. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth. The Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This goes again and again and again for all the prophets. Ezekiel 1, 1, 2, and 3. Amos 7, 14, and 15. Prophets were not by birth, not by majority, not by giftedness or ability or special talents or abilities. no. Prophets were called by God, and God ordained them personally, appointed them personally. 
So false prophets, false uh, prophets were simply false because they were not called by God. They were not called by God. Jeremiah 14, 14, I did not send them. I did not speak to them. I did not give them these words. They're prophesying their own fantasies, their own ideas, things that they have made up in their minds. They are not speaking my words. Jeremiah 28, 15, listen Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You have made these people trust in a lie. You're a false prophet because I never chose you. I never commissioned you. Therefore, what you say is not truth. Prophets spoke as God's heralds. And uh, I mean, they, they prophesied with their whole lives. It's amazing reading the Old Testament prophets. It's incredible how for three years, right, Isaiah 22 and 3, Isaiah went around naked and barefoot for three years to preach the word and to tell people you're going to be unclothed. You have no covering. You're vulnerable to attack. Ezekiel for 390 days laid on one side, cooking food over a pot over human dung. A visual picture of God's judgment against the nation of Israel. Jeremiah called the elders of Israel, elders of Judah together, and he bought an expensive clay pot, and in front of them, he shattered it. Right? Irreparably shattered it, destroyed it, and he said, this is the nation of Judah. This is what God's going to do to you and to these people. So God always spoke. From long ago, (coughs) in various ways, Outside of his direct speaking, always through his prophets, and even his direct speaking, apart from that initial speaking, the record that we have in the Bible is through his prophets. So in that way, it was always by his prophets. Someone might ask, what about dreams and visions? This is this fascination, this uh, mysticism, this new age mindset, it's still continuing. It's amazing to me. 21st century we're living in a technologically advanced society. And yet people are still reading that book, The Secret. Right? You guys hear about that? Like positive thoughts and positive things will happen to you. It's amazing that it's a bestseller. In, this is not like, you know, some, it's not like Korea, right? Or, or it's not like Asia or Africa. In, in our country, that's a bestseller. People think God speaks to us apart from prophets through dreams and visions. They appeal to the Old Testament. Do we not realize that God spoke through dreams and visions, but no one knew the right interpretation of dreams and visions apart from God's prophets. No one knew the truth, the meaning behind these dreams without the prophets. Remember Joseph with uh, the cupbearer and the baker? They had these dreams. I had this dream. I don't know. I'm having this dream every night. What does it mean? I have no idea. Joseph interprets. Right? Pharaoh has that dream, has another dream. Years later, three years later, he has no idea what's going on. How do you interpret dreams? There's no rules, hermeneutics for dreams and visions. Only the prophet of God can discern the meaning behind the dream. And he gives that to Pharaoh. 
and proves to be true. He predicts the future and proves to be right. What about Daniel chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it's oppressive to him. He calls all the wise men of, of Chaldea and he says, I had a dream. I need you to interpret for me. And what do they do? Sure, king, tell us a dream, we'll interpret it, no problem. But King Nebuchadnezzar is not a, not a doofus, right? He's not a, it's not a dummy. He knows, wait a minute. <clears throat> if I tell you the dream and you interpret it, how do I know if you're right or wrong? You can tell me anything and um, I'll be none the wiser. If you truly have the wisdom to interpret a dream, you will know what dream I had. Right? Daniel chapter 2. Right? And these wise men, these enchanters, sorcerers of, of the nation say, ah, it's impo- are you crazy? No one, we can interpret your dream, but we can't tell you what dream you had. You have to tell us the dream. And King Nebuchadnezzar understands what they're doing. He says, you're buying for time. Right? You're buying for time. Daniel 2, verse 5, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So, they're in a panic. They're in a panic. They go to Daniel. Daniel stands. And he says, O king, Daniel 2.27, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. That is impossible for man. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And he unfolds what dream Nebuchadnezzar had and he unfolds the meaning of this dream. It's a prophecy of the future. How was he able to do that? Because he was a prophet of God. God was with him. Do we see... Even when God used dreams and visions and experiences, miracles to speak, it was always through His messengers, always through His prophets. And you're saying, Pastor James, aren't we studying Second Timothy, right? Are we studying the Old Testament? What is going on here? Well, back to Hebrews 1, verse 2. And here's the tie. Long ago, many times, Many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in this last dispensation, in the church age, the gospels in the church age, He has spoken to us by His Son. By His Son. For three and a half years during our Lord's earthly ministry, God spoke to us by His Son. A very unique time in the history of the world that will be never repeated. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, who has made Him known. Jesus exegeted God. Jesus made the Father known, revealed to us the true knowledge of God for three and a half years on His strings earthly ministry, by His preaching and by His conduct. Now fast forward, after the three and a half years of our Lord's ministry, the responsibility of making Jesus known was given not to prophets, 
but to the apostles of Christ Jesus. The stewardship of this revelation was given to men for them to exegete Christ, for them to exposit Christ, for them, just like the Old Testament prophets spoke God's word and also explained dreams and visions, these apostles were given the stewardship to proclaim Christ and also explain, interpret the doctrine of Christ. So the Gospels, the red parts, those are direct words of Christ. The epistles are the apostles' explanations of Christ. Right? Book of Romans, Christ died. We know that fact. What does that mean? Let me explain to you the thousand and one implications of the death of Christ. Galatians, let me explain to you the implications of the cross of Christ as opposed to the Old Testament law. Hebrews, let me explain to you what the cross of Christ means in the Ten Commandments. First John, let me explain to you what the cross of Christ means to how we live, professing to be Christians, what it means to us. The apostles received that commission and were faithful to it. And they were given the stewardship of prophecy, of predictive prophecy. First Thessalonians, first second Peter, second Thessalonians as well, book of Revelation. Many parts, uh, other parts of the epistles, they're given the stewardship of predicting the future. Just like the Old Testament prophets. So, great parallel. So when we look at the apostleship in the New Testament, it didn't start in, in Acts 2. It began really in the book of Genesis, the book of Job, the first prophet, Job himself. So, It is with that long, indirect path through Hebrews 1, Old Testament prophets, we come now to 2 Timothy 1.1. Because that is Paul's first description of himself. Paul's first description of himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We spend four weeks on Paul, the first word, Now we're going to spend at least two weeks on his next three Greek words. Apostolu Christu Yesu. Apostle of Christ Jesus. This phrase Paul used six times in his letters. He wrote 13 letters. Almost half of them he began with these words. Paul, Apostle of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Ephesians 1.1, Colossians 1.1. In 2 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1. Right. apostle, delegate, a messenger, ambassador, the one who was sent. It's a generic term, messenger, ambassador, delegate, generic term, used broadly during New Testament times. In fact, even in the Bible, the word apostle was used in the broad sense, a generic sense. Philippians 2.25 Epaphroditus is called an apostle of the church at Philippi. So we send short-term missionaries. So you guys are our cornerstone apostles. We send you, please tell Peter greetings. Uh, Please tell Pastor Teo greetings. Please tell so-and-so, you know, hello. We're sending you, so in the broad way, we can call you apostles. That's how they called Epaphroditus. 
2 Corinthians 8.23, Titus is called an apostle in the generic sense. John 13.16, our Lord uses it as an illustration generically as well. But here in 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul is not referring to himself in the broad sense. He's using the specific sense. He's referring to his biblical office as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle of Christ Jesus. Three criteria have to be met. Three criteria have to be met for a man to be qualified to be called an apostle of Christ Jesus. Anybody can call themselves whatever, but you have to meet these three criteria. First of all, you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You have to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Acts 1, 22, when they were replacing Judas... They said, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Paul makes much of the fact <clears throat> that he did see Christ after he was risen. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? I am an apostle, I'm paraphrasing here, because have I not, Paul said, seen Jesus our Lord. He's defending his apostolic authority to the Corinthians who are unruly, who are unsubmissive to his authority. And he appeals to them, I am an apostle, and I can verify, I meet the first criterion, which is, I've seen the risen Lord. First Corinthians 15, 7 and 8, appearances of Christ to his apostles. He appeared to James, then to all, then to all the apostles, Last of all, he also appeared to me. So, to be an apostle, you have to have seen the, seen the risen Lord. Second qualification that has to be met is, must be directly called by Jesus Christ. Personally appointed, commissioned, called by Christ Jesus. The original 12 were called in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 1, He called to Him 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits, cast them out to heal every disease, every affliction. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These 12 were appointed by our Lord Christ. Paul is added to that group. Now, when did this happen? If you remember our study, the Apostle Paul, you will note Acts 26. Turn to Acts 26, verses 8 through 18. Paul recounts for the third time his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. How he saw the risen Lord, and there... The Lord in all His glory appeared to him and commissioned him. King Agrippa says to Paul, Do you want me to be a Christian just like you? And Paul's response is verse 8, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Christian saints in prison. 
And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them, against my obsession against Christians. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king. I was on that road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, this native tongue, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats, kick against your conscience. You know the truth in your heart. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied. And then here is the commissioning of Paul to his apostleship. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I am sending you as an apostle. For this purpose, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, sanctified by faith in me. Saul, so you're the least likely candidate to be in a representative of Jesus Christ. The least likely time for you to be an apostle of Christ. For you are on your way to kill Christians. But it is not up to you. It is not your choice. It is not up to your desire. I am the sovereign and I have appointed, to you, appointed you for this purpose to rescue souls, to proclaim the gospel, to rescue people from the dominion of Satan, the kingdom of God. So Paul, this was his, one of his certificate of authenticity. This was his license, his ordination, if you will. And repeated it often. He spoke about this. Even later on in 2 Timothy 1.1, we'll find out next week, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Not my will. My will is kill Christians. My desire is to torment, torture, persecute, arrest Christians. God's will, apostle of Christ. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. First Timothy 1.12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He appointed me to His service. First Timothy 2.7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And He adds an addendum, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. So, three qualifications. I've seen the risen Lord. By the risen Lord, be commissioned, appointed by Him to be an apostle. He chooses us. We don't choose Him. Third, is that 
your apostleship is verified, it's confirmed by performing of miracles, signs, and wonders. It's almost an authenticating qualification, a verifying, a validating qualification that if you profess to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, there will be a market uh, power in you to perform miracles. I mean, to know the will of God and to say to a man who is paralyzed, silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I'll give to you. I know it is God's will for you to be healed. I'm not praying for you that God will heal you. I'm not petitioning God with you that God might give, show mercy and heal you. I know the mind of God. I know His will. And His will is for you to be healed. And I know this moment is when He will heal you. And I will be used by God to heal you. Rise up and walk. Apostles. Right? They were marked by this power. For signs and wonders. Acts 2.43 All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 4.33 With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great dunamis, with great signs. Acts 5.12 Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Regular occurrence by the apostles. And so Paul appeals to this. He understands there are three qualifications. And to his most bitter enemies in the, within the church sense, St. Corinthians, he tells them, he, he says, you've driven me to defend myself. Right? That's a humble thing for a, a spiritual leader to do. And when you have such an unruly people, people who are so dismissive of your of, of respect and honor, that you are forced to assert your right to direct them. It's an embarrassing thing. And Paul says, I do this because you have driven me towards it. It's in Corinthians 12, 11. I have been a fool to defend myself for 10 chapters here. I've been a fool. You forced me to do it. I ought to be commended by you. I am not inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. I'm not saying I'm anything, but I'm not inferior to them. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So I am no less an apostle. I saw the risen Lord. He has commissioned me and Signs, powerful signs, pointing me to as an apostle, were done among you. You've seen it with your own eyes. You can verify the miracles that I perform. Not pointing that I am someone special, but authenticating my role, my position, my office as an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is how Paul begins his letter. Putting forth his apostleship because... This is what Timothy needs. This is what the church at Ephesus needs as they read this letter read by Timothy. And because this is what we need. As students of 2 Timothy, as readers of the Bible, we need to understand it is God speaking. Yes, it is through this man, Apostle Paul, the greatest of all sinners. But just like in the Old Testament, 
as with the new, Christ is speaking to us through his apostle. So with that reverential, humble attitude, we must be studying the text weeks, months, years to come. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your sovereign grace. We marvel and in awe at your great power, your authority, your sovereignty indeed. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we fully acknowledge that the word of God that proceeds out of your mouth will not return to you void or empty, but will accomplish its set purpose. You've ordained that Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, the darkest period of his life, you ordained, you commissioned him to be saved, sanctified, and set apart to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And you have used him to reveal your mysterious truths, counsels of God to us. That stewardship has been given to us now. Each of us, forgiven by the cross of Christ, we're the possessors of the truth of the scriptures. We pray that you would grant us grace to be faithful stewards of this truth. That we would herald the gospel faithfully, that we'll not deviate from Paul's message, but would faithfully declare its truths. And also by our conduct, by our lives, by our radical obedience to the cross, we will uphold this truth so that people of our generation might hear it and be saved. We thank you for these wonderful servants that you have used throughout, throughout history so that we might have your revelation in, our, in this book, the Bible, for it to benefit and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.